John chapter 17, I'll read the first five verses. These words spake Jesus and lifted up his eyes to heaven and said, Father, the hour is come. Glorify thy son, that thy son also may glorify thee, as thou hast given him power over all flesh, that he should give eternal life to as many as thou hast given him. And this is the life eternal, that they might know thee, the only true God, and Jesus Christ, whom thou hast sent. I have glorified thee on the earth. I have finished the work which thou gavest me to do. And now, O Father, glorify thou me with thine own self, with the glory which I had with thee before the world was. And all God's people said, Amen. Amen. Our Heavenly Father, we pray thee now that you would open up your words unto us, that we might appreciate the gift of eternal life that thou hast given us through thy Son, Jesus Christ. In his name we pray. Amen. Um, what I want to do, since this is what is traditionally called Palm Sunday, our deacon read for us the account where Jesus um, went down from the Mount of Olives and into the temple. So I want to tie that um, together with John uh, 17, verse 3 here, in, in particular, that we would appreciate what the Lord is saying here, and that we would appreciate it in the context of certainly the, um, what the world calls the Passion Week. The world calls today um, Palm Sunday, and there is no such thing in the Bible. It's a construct of man. Um, Lent, or which begins with Ash Wednesday, that's a construct of man. Um, Christmas Day, that it's on December 25th, that's a construct of man. And Easter is a construct of man as well. It should be just the Feast of Unleavened Bread or, or Passover. Um, but these are all things that are, that are con- the construct of men. And so um, when the Lord says here in John uh, 17, verses 2 and 3, that um, he would give, that we would know him, the only true God, and Jesus Christ, whom thou hast sent, I ask the question, what does it mean to know God? We should appreciate that it's a gift here, that eternal life is a gift, and to know uh, God and Jesus Christ is a gift. The gift is eternal life, but to know them all is also a gift. So what does it mean to know God? Well, what it does not mean, it does not mean to know about him. And those are certainly two very different things. There's just a I can't imagine how many people actually know about Jesus. I would even ask the question, who is it in this planet there is that does not know about Jesus? Where would somebody have to live? Where would they have to have been the last 2,000 years that they would not know about Jesus? As I mentioned, Ash Wednesday, Palm Sunday, Easter, Christmas, these are all man-made, all, but they're all about Jesus in some way or another. Um, Everything with respect to the uh, biblical account surrounding the cross of Christ is very public. It's very public, uh, what took place on the Passover there. The Passover, as you are well aware, is one of the three feasts of the year where all the Jewish men were required to present themselves before the Lord. That is to say, the Feast of Unleavened Bread. All the men were required to go there. So as you can imagine, it is a very um, populous and popular um, festival and, and, and occasion. So the entire nation, all the men would have had to have been there. And so if you look this up in the historical accounts, there were between somewhere, one uh, historian says there were 2.7 million people there uh, during the Passover 
in the year that the light, the Lord was crucified. Another account says there was between 350 and 500,000 people were there. So whether you take the most conservative between three and five or 2.7 million, we should appreciate that the place was absolutely jammed with people. And so the requirement was that the men would go. However, you'll recall from the account in the book of Luke when Jesus goes there at the age of 12 that he goes there with his family. His cousins are there and his mother is there as well. So all families uh, went there together. So it wasn't just public in the context of uh, what took place was in front of the men of Israel, but the whole nation uh, would show up. People, um, you know, men, women of all ages would uh, in fact be there. It's so crowded, in fact, that you can imagine that there wouldn't be a place for people to stay in a hotel or whatever they would have called it back then. We read in Luke chapter 21, verse 37, that um, during the day the Lord was teaching during this Passion Week, and at the night he resorted on the Mount of Olives. So there's no doubt in my mind that the first night he would have spent on the Mount of Olives because there was, would have been no place for him to stay. Um, our deacon read from uh, Matthew chapter 21, and we should appreciate that the account that's set before us there in Matthew chapter 21 actually takes place chronologically over a period of three days. It covers the 9th, Nisan the 9th, Nisan the 10th, and Nisan um, the 11th. It's the way they go up to the Mount of Olives uh, on the 9th. It is on Nisan the 10th in accordance with the uh, Passover as uh, set before the people on Exodus chapter 12. All everything's laid out there about what day they should take the lamb and what days they should do things. And so it's on the 10th um, that Jesus actually walks down the Mount of Olives. And what's interesting is there's just this little verse um, statement made in the book of Acts that the distance from the Mount of Olives to the temple or to Jerusalem was a Sabbath day's journey. So we know that it wasn't very far, and it was a distance that could be made in accordance with the Mosaic law, um, that it would not violate the laws and the rules that were set before the people respecting the Sabbath. Now, interestingly enough, with respect of all of how public this, this thing was here, we know that it was prophesied what would take place. Uh, Zechariah chapter 9, verse 9 talks about how that um, in verse 5 there of Matthew 21 that our deacon read, he says, Tell ye the daughter of Zion, behold, thy king cometh unto thee, meek and sitting upon an ass, and a colt, the foal of an ass. So in a, in a very public display, Jesus rides down the Mount of Olives, and it says the whole multitude went with him, and the whole multitude cried out, um, you know, Hosanna in the highest, blessed is he that cometh in the name of the Lord. Um, Hosanna to the son of David. And Luke, it talks about how they declared him and said that, that he was king. And so I can't hardly imagine how much attention this got from not only the local population, but also from the, the Romans themselves, who I would have felt, might have felt a little bit nervous and threatened by the fact that somebody was declared a king, he was coming down the mount, and people were declaring that he was king. The whole multitude, they were even taking clothing and setting it down before him that he would ride on top of that. And then they're cutting down the branches from the trees and put, destroying those in front of his path as well. So clearly the people were moved in a, in a very demonstrative way. And so this, uh, everybody would have known what was going on. In verse 10 of Matthew 21, it says, And when he was coming to Jerusalem, all the city was moved, saying, Who is this? So the whole city is moved, and he's identified as Jesus, the prophet of Nazareth, of Galilee. So they identified him, who he was known to be. Very public ministry, thousands of people were fed. Uh, about this time, he had raised Lazarus from the dead, something that everybody knew about here. He's stirring up things. In Ezekiel chapter um, 43, um, it says that, 
with respect to uh, the glory of the Lord in Ezekiel chapter 43. It says in verse 3 that it is the prince, he shall sit in, that's not what the verse I wanted to read. I've got it in front of me. I'm going to read verses 1 and 2 of Ezekiel 43. There it is. After he brought me unto the gate, Ezekiel is being led and has this vision, so he's brought to the gate of the uh, temple. He says, even the gate that looketh toward the east. So he's brought to the east gate, verse 2. And behold, the glory of the God of Israel came from the way of the east, and his voice was like a noise of many waters, and the earth shined with his glory. So that's exactly what Jesus is doing. He's coming from the east. The Mount of Olives is on the east. He's coming right down. There's a multitude, a very loud um, voice of people uh, declaring who he is. And um, down he goes, and he goes right into the east gate. In verse 4, And the glory of the Lord came into the house by the way of the gate, whose prospect is towards the east. Verse 5, The glory of the Lord filled the house. So Jesus goes right down. And he goes directly into the temple. And then later, if you read Ezekiel 44, it says that that gate shall be shut. It says in verse 2 of Ezekiel 44, Then said the Lord unto me, This gate shall be shut. It shall not be opened, and no man shall enter in by it, because the Lord, the God of Israel, hath entered in by it. Therefore, it shall be shut. And, and it was. That prophecy was fulfilled. The gate was bricked up. And if you look at the city wall of Jerusalem today, the eastern gate is, in fact, shut up. So here comes Jesus, and he goes right down into the temple, just as it was prophesied to be. And what does he do there? By the way, it's a Sabbath day. He cleanses the temple. And so you can expect that that's going to get a lot of attention, not just because he's cleansing the, tem- the temple, casting over the money uh, changers' tables and driving them actually out of the temple. He declares that it's my house, verse 13 of Matthew 21. It is written, my house shall be called the house of prayer, but ye have made it a den of thieves. So he's gone in there and he's offended everybody that's associated with this um, monetary process. And it says that the chief priests and scribes saw these wonderful things and they were sore displeased. The point I'm making with respect to all of this is it was incredibly um, public, the things that he had done. Now, He's declared it to be his house. He's doing something on the Sabbath day, which when he'd healed on the Sabbath days in the past, that had vexed the religious people. And so he's stirred up everything. He's got the Romans stirred up. He's got the local population stirred up. He's got the Sanhedrin stirred up. He's got the scribes and Pharisees stirred up. Everybody's stirred up. And so very, very public. Everybody knows that Jesus is there. Everybody knows who he is, at least superficially. During the daytime, he was teaching in the temple, and then, as I'd mentioned, he'd gone out and resorted on the hill and the nights. He'd been questioned by the scribes and Pharisees in the course of his teaching, so much so that that he had stumped them, if I can use that language, he had stumped them, um, that they durst ask him no more questions. And, of course, this is in fulfillment with respect to the Passover, that you would take the lamb on the tenth day, keep it to the fourth day, and inspecting it to ensure that it was, in fact, a lamb without spot. They're doing the same thing to Jesus. They're asking him questions. They're trying to find fault with him. They're trying to cause him to trip up or to stumble or to say something or to do something that would be at variance with the Mosaic law, but they could never do it. He was questioned when he was taken by Ananias and Caiaphas, the high priest. He was questioned by Pilate, Herod, back to Pilate again. He was abused and he was scourged. And just as it says in Isaiah 53, he was sent like a lamb uh, to the slaughter. Um, On the cross, we should appreciate that that is probably the most public 
means of execution um, that was ever conceived. I can think of no more public execution. You know, you'll have uh, occasionally the Muslim nations will behead somebody publicly. We have certainly had public hangings in this country. And the English used to uh, take pirates, you know, and put them in a basket uh, at low tide and keep them in the basket. The tide would come up, drown them, and then the water would go back down. Very public means of executions, but they were generally swifter. A crucifixion, somebody being crucified, was publicly humiliated, scourged, then put on the cross, and their death might take several days. And lots of people could walk by and watch the process by which the individual died being nailed to a cross. And we should understand and appreciate that lots of people walked by Jesus when he was on the cross. 300 to 500,000 people there, 2.7 million, I don't know. A lot of people saw what took place, and they did walk by. In Lamentations chapter 1, verse 12, the Lord says, Is it nothing to you, all ye that pass by? Behold, and see if there be any sorrow like unto my sorrow which is done unto me, wherewith the Lord hath afflicted me in the day of his fierce anger. You can just appreciate the egregious um, and sorrowful condition of the Lord's heart while he's hanging up there on the cross and people are walking by. Sin has been imputed to him. The scripture says that cursed is every man that hangeth upon a tree. And so it's just the most grievous and sorrowful thing. And people are walking by. And what is the people's response Well, again, prophesied in Psalm 22, verses 7 and 8. All they that see me laugh me to scorn. They shoot out the lip, they shake the head, saying, He trusted on the Lord that he would deliver him. Let him deliver him, seeing he delighted in him. So everybody knew who he was. Everybody knew that he was Jesus of Nazareth. And they knew what he had said of himself, because that is the reason they are laughing him to scorn. They're saying, hey, come down from the cross now. uh, Save yourself. Um, And though they knew what he said about himself, and they knew who he was, they did not believe. They did not believe what he said about himself. They did not believe the testimony that God had said relative to him because his works did testify who he was. They didn't know him in the context of Scripture. They do not appreciate that he is the embodiment of truth itself. And so, uh, again, being lifted up, that was prophesied. Pastor Rowan covered that from Numbers chapter 21 um, a couple of weeks ago. The brass, or last week, the brass serpent was lifted up. Um, Psalm 22 speaks of the suffering that an individual will experience while they are being crucified. Everything associated with the Passover was fulfilled with respect to the, the Lord. The earth, or the heavens were darkened. The earth was shaken. The veil of the temple rent from top to the bottom. Everybody knew about it. And if you missed that, I don't know how you could miss graves being opened and three days later, dead people coming out of the graves. That's Matthew 27, verse 51 through 53. And behold, the veil of the temple was rent in twain from the top to the bottom. The earth did quake and the rocks rent and the graves were opened and many bodies of the saints which slept arose. Pause and came out of the graves after his resurrection and went into the holy city and appeared unto many. I don't know how you could miss that sign. Very public. Who could not know what has taken place? 
John 17, 3, the Lord says, And this is life eternal, that they might know thee, the only true God, and Jesus Christ, whom thou hast sent. So there's a lot of people that know about Jesus. Some people think they even know him. And in Matthew 7, 21 through 23, are some very problematic verses. In Matthew 7, 21 through 23, the Lord says here, Not everyone that saith unto me, Lord, in other words, they're calling him Lord, 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 shall enter into the kingdom of heaven. But he that doeth the will of my Father which is in heaven. Verse 22, Many will say to me in that day, Lord, Lord, have we not prophesied in thy name, and in thy name have cast out devils, and in thy name done many wonderful works? Then will I, this is the Jesus speaking, profess unto them, I never knew you. Depart from me that work iniquity. Clearly these people knew about Jesus. They call him Lord. They claim to have prophesied in his name. They claim to have cast out devils in his name. They claim to have done many wonderful works in his name. They claim that they know Jesus. Not about him, but actually know him, uh, utilizing um, his name uh, by which they would do these wonderful works. Well, what about Judas can be said? What can we say about Judas? Did he not know the Lord? Did he not minister with the Lord for three and a half years? He did every one of those things. He cast out devils. He, he healed people. He did all of those things, having been empowered by the Lord to do those things. But did he know Jesus? Obviously not in the context that the Lord has set before us here in John 17, 3. He does not know him in the way that the Lord means here. Now, the Bible will use the word know in the way that um, means that two people know themselves in the most intimate of ways. In Genesis 4, 1, we see the word used. It says, And Adam knew Eve, his wife, and she conceived and bare Cain and said, I have begotten a man from the Lord. So the word know here in John 17, 3 means to be, means in the most intimate sense of the word. It means essentially to be one flesh with. So the Lord says here that you would know both, that you would know God and you would know Jesus Christ. And in the context of intimacy, you cannot know one without the other. But you can know about one and not know about the other. And the Lord sets that before us um, in the context of general revelation versus special revelation. Scripture teaches us, Jesus says, that I and my Father are one. So of a truth, if you are going to know one, you are going to know the other in that context. Now, when we're reading John 17, 3 here, we should appreciate that Jesus says that they would know God as the one true God. He says here that they might know thee, obviously he's praying to the Father, the only true God, and Jesus Christ whom thou hast sent. And so in the context here, clearly he's speaking that they would have an intimate knowledge of God the Father. You'll see this in 1 Thessalonians 1.9 where it talks about knowing God, knowing the true and the living God. In 1 Thessalonians 1.9 it says, For they themselves show us what manner of entering in we had unto you, and how ye turned to God from idols to serve the true and living God. And so we should appreciate that the true and the living God, of course, is God the Father. Unless you dig a little bit deeper and look at 1 John 5, verse 20, because there he says that Jesus is the one true God. In 1 John 5, 20 it says, And we know that the Son of God is come, 
and have given us an understanding. That understanding comes from God and comes from Christ that we may know him, that is true, and we are in him, that is true, even his son, Jesus Christ, this is the true God and eternal life. It's a bit of a restatement of what we just read in John 17, 3. Jesus here is said to be the one true God and to know him is eternal life. We always um, appreciate that um, Jesus in him dwells all the fullness of the Godhead bodily and that he is the visible revelation of the living God. He is the brightness of his glory and the expressed image of his person. Uh, So to have eternal life, in John 17, 3 here, it says that we have to know God. And to know God, one must be united with him, or united with him uh, in terms of uh, he who is the eternal being. Um, Unregenerated man are dead in trespasses and sin, and we know that the scripture says that on the day that Adam sinned, that he died and death passed upon all men in whom all have sinned. So to know God is to be united with him in the, in the, with respect to the way the word know is used in the scripture. And we know that in him, in Christ, in God is life. And the Lord says that in the Gospel of John and also in 1 John. He says that in him was life and the life was the light of men. So if you're in Christ, then you have eternal life. In 1 John chapter 5, verse 11 and 12, he spells this out for us very clearly. 1 John chapter 5, verse 11 and 12. And this is the record, meaning the Bible, that God hath given to us eternal life. And this life is in his Son. This life is in his Son. He that hath the Son hath life, and he that hath not the Son of God hath not life. Again, back to 1 John 5.20 that we read earlier, said, he said that um, we are in him, that is true, in his Son, Jesus Christ. This is the true God and eternal life. To be in his son, to be in him is eternal life. And so back to John 17, 3. And this is the life eternal, that they might know thee, the true God, the only true God, and Jesus Christ whom thou hast sent. We must know both of them. And again, to know Christ is to know God the Father. He says, and in John 17, 3. Know God and, and Jesus Christ whom thou hast sent. So to know the Son is to know the Father. In 2 Corinthians 5.17, it speaks about how if any man be in Christ, if any man be in Christ, he is a new creature. Old things are passed away. Behold, all things are become new. We are eternal creatures. We are new creatures, eternal creatures, in the context that we have an eternal union with the true and living God, who, of course, is obviously is an eternal being. So we have eternal union and eternal fellowship and eternal life with God. We are said to be partakers of the divine nature in so much as Christ is in us. Now, again, others are dead in trespasses and sin, but not so the believer. He has quickened us in Christ and united us with him and lifted us unto glory with him, as it says in Ephesians chapter 2. So, again, with respect to what other people believe, they do not believe who he is. They do not believe who Christ says he is. They do not believe what he has to say about himself. Again, we read that they laughed him to scorn. You know that people use the name of of Jesus as a byword. Um, They do not believe um, who he is. They don't believe, and this takes us to the election of God, his sovereignty is because they don't, they have not received the witness of God. 
They have only received the witness of men. It's one thing if I preach the gospel to you, um, but God has to attend to it and place his witness with it and impress that truth upon your heart. In 1 John 5, 9 through 12, the Lord says, 1 John 5, 9, if we, believe, if, excuse me, if we receive the witness of men, the witness of God is greater. For this is the witness of God, which he hath testified of his Son. He that believeth on the Son of God hath the witness in himself. In order for you to believe, you have the witness of God in yourself. He that believeth not God hath made him a liar, because he believed not the record that God gave of his Son. Jesus is hanging up on the cross. God the Father has already said of him, This is my beloved Son, in whom I am well pleased. They did not believe God's testimony about what he had said about himself. They did not believe the works that he had done, which were affirming that he was who he said he was. They were calling God a liar. And that's what men do when you preach to them the gospel, they, and they don't believe you. They are calling God a liar because you are God's ambassador on this earth, um, beseeching men that they would be reconciled to God through Jesus Christ. Verse 11, and this is the record that God hath given to us eternal life, and this life is in his Son. It's very simply stated, verse 12, He that hath the Son hath life, and he that hath not the Son of God hath not life. And so it is. There's special revelation, which is what we're just talking about here in terms of God revealing himself to us, and there's general revelation, which the Lord speaks about in Romans chapter 1, verses 19 through 20. God says it. Hey, I've created everything, and through the creation, you can appreciate who I am, even my eternal power and Godhead. If you don't, um, then you are changing the truth into a lie. You are without excuse, the Lord says. You are without excuse because I have revealed certain characteristics and attributes of myself to you through the creation. But the Lord says that people are not going to believe on him. He says that in Isaiah 53 in the opening verse here. He says, who hath believed our report? And to whom is the arm of the Lord revealed? Only to those to whom God will open their hearts, they would appreciate what has been said of Christ that comes from God himself. You see that wonderful example in Matthew chapter 11, verses 25 through 27, when Jesus asks um, the disciples, whom do you say that I am? And they answer, well, some say this, some say that, some say the other thing. Um, But he says, whom do you say that I am? And they say, well, thou art this, um, the Christ, the son of the living God. And then the Lord says, blessed art thou, Peter, son of Barjona, because flesh and blood hath not revealed this to you. In other words, the witness of man has not revealed it to you. But my Father, which is in heaven, hath revealed it to you. And so um, God, again, helps us to appreciate that this witness comes from, comes from God. 2 Corinthians chapter 4, verse 6, very similar to this in terms of special revelation. In 2 Corinthians 4, 6, it says, For God, who commanded the light to shine out of darkness, has shined in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. God takes that revelation of himself, places it right into the heart of the believer that they would appreciate and understand and know Christ himself. He puts that right into our heart. And so... Again, what's set before us here in John 17, 3, is the Lord is making a petition that the disciples and those that would believe on uh, Christ through their preaching, that's in verse 20 of John 17, that they would know the only true God in Jesus Christ whom um, God has sent.
So, also helping us to appreciate this idea of revelation is it's very interesting here because right here in verse 3, Jesus declares himself to be the Christ. There's no ambiguity of language here. Sometimes we think of the term Christ as like a, a surname. Jesus is his first name and Christ is, uh, is a surname. But Christ, as you know, in the Greek means the anointed one. And it comes from the Hebrew term Messiah, which also means the anointed one. He is telling them as clear as a bell that he is the anointed one. Many scriptures uh, spake about the anointed one coming, the Messiah coming. Um, and these people had a reasonable explanation that the Messiah would come. In Daniel chapter 9, he lays out the clock. Lord willing, we'll talk about that next Sunday. But he lays out the clock as to when um, the Messiah is going to come. Um, you recall the woman uh, of Samaria that was, uh, came to the well, and the Lord sat upon the well, uh, Jacob's well, and she came to him, and they had a conversation up there. And she said to him, in John chapter 4, verse 25 and 26, the woman saith unto him, I know that Messiah cometh. So here's a woman who's cut off from the temple and all of the temple sacrificial um, ordinances and the ability to even come to the temple because she is not um, exclusively a daughter of Abraham, meaning that both of her parents were not from there. She's mixed. She was uh, a mixed blood with the um, Assyrians. And so she, the uh, Samaritans are ostracized from society. And yet they have an expectation that the Messiah is going to come. They've heard enough to expect the Messiah. And the woman said unto him, I know that Messiah cometh, which is called Christ. So if there's any question about those terms being synonyms, right here the Lord has placed that. When he is come, he will tell us all things. Jesus saith unto her, I that speak unto thee am he. In other words, I am the Messiah. I am the Christ. And so I want us to appreciate how that the Lord to his elect, in a very intimate setting, reveals who he is to them. He's revealed to this woman, I am the Messiah. He's saying to his disciples, I am the Christ. I am the anointed one in terms of his identification of himself. And so we can appreciate what it says in scriptures in Hebrews eleven six. It says, but without faith, it is impossible to please him, meaning it is impossible to please God. For he that cometh to God must believe that he is and that he is a rewarder of them that diligently seek him. Must believe that he is. Is what? That he is the Christ. That he is the Son of God. That he is the only true God. And that he is a rewarder of them that diligently seek him. Rewarding them with what? Eternal life. Rewarding them with himself. Does not the Lord say that to Abraham? I am thy exceeding great reward. Christ is the reward that we receive. And in that, of course, is eternal life. And again, the Lord finishes this up by again saying that he has been sent um, from God. So there are a number of scriptures that we have talked about in the past that affirm that he is the one that has been sent from God. And if he's the one that has been sent from God, he's been sent to come and he's been sent to bear witness of the Father. He's been sent to uh, reveal the Father unto us. He's been sent to redeem a people unto himself. And... Um, and he has done that very thing in the context and the course of his ministry um, there. So he is the Messiah because he is the one that is sent. So that's another way of the Lord has shared that same thing with us here. So what did I wanted us to appreciate this morning in the context of the, um, all of the man-made religious ordinances that the world is about to engage in and is engaging in even some of them today is that there's just a, a lot of people that know about Jesus 
but there's only a few by God's grace and by his revelation that actually know him. And this is what we would pray for others just as the Lord is praying here. We would pray that they would know him, that they would have a personal relationship with him, that he would in fact indwell them because it is through that process that they might know him and eternally fellowship with him and have eternal life with him. And I'll close with that. Amen.